Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. I'm really excited for today's conversation with my dear friend and colleague, Josh Pfeiffer. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take a moment to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. And now, without further delay, let's get to today's conversation. Hello, Josh. Hi, baby. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started with just a background question. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. My current position is Assistant Professor of Piano and Piano Area Head at Valdosta State University. I'm also a local church organist, and I teach privately pre-college students and some adult students in the area. So my journey of how I ended up here, I grew up, I was born and raised and grew up in Tokyo. My father is an American, my mother's Japanese, and both my parents are in education. They've been college professors all their life. So I come from parents that are extremely gifted and very big shoes to fill for me. My sister and I uh, are both musicians. Interestingly, neither one of us were really going to start in that career. For me, growing up uh, in our house, my father would play snippets of classical music from the records, and we would play Guess That Composer, and that's how I got interested in classical music. So my history of piano began at the age of about nine when I started begging my parents for piano lessons. Mm. And it took a year and a half of begging Mm. until my parents finally decided, okay, this is just not Josh wanting a spur of the moment interest. He's actually pretty serious about it. So my parents being parents and frugal, they decided that they would find a used pump organ that they bought at a garage sale for like 20 bucks. And in one and a half years, I went through nine different teachers. My parents were just trying to save some money. So finally, we found a teacher that we liked. Um, And this was because my sister, around the same time, had shown interest. And since I'd gone through nine teachers, my parents decided that maybe for my sister, they would do it the right way, (laughs) which was they went to our church and talked to our music director, who was a violinist from Minnesota, from St. Olaf, who was visiting. And they went and asked him, says, my daughter's interested in violin. We want to do this the right way. Who do you recommend? Mm. And so the violinist recommended a local uh, music teacher, husband and wife team. The wife taught violin, the husband taught piano. Mm. They said, she is incredible. She's Mm. tough, but she's incredible. So my sister started with her and just flew. Mm. And six months into this, I was complaining and going through all these teachers. And my parents finally says, okay, well, maybe we better see about the husband teaching Mm. piano. Um, So I went and visited the husband, and Mr. Kotani was his name, and he had talked to me for an extensive time at that interview, and he said, you know, I'm really busy right now because I have my studio recital in two weeks. Mm. Come to the studio recital, and then come back and talk to me, Mm. and if you're still interested, we'll talk. Mm. So two weeks later, I went to the studio recital. My sister obviously played violin, but then I saw a six-year-old girl walk on stage and whip through a Clementi Sonatina, which I was like hacking through. Hmm. I couldn't get my fingers to do anything right, and it was just hideous. 
And the six-year-old walks up on stage and plays it flawlessly, and I go, okay, I'm 12 now. Oh. <laughs> so I showed up again with my head between my tail. <laughs> And we spoke, and he goes, what do you think? And I said, oh, I really want to study with you. And he goes, all right, play for me. And I said, I, I don't want to. And he goes, you have to play for me. If you don't play for me, I'm not going to accept you. So I sheepishly went to the piano and kind of hacked through this Clementi Sonatina, and I looked at him and said, I'm really sorry, but I saw a six-year-old do it flawlessly. I will do anything. Mm -hmm. And his response to me was, you're 12. I don't take 12-year-olds. You're too old. You're kind of hopeless. And I went, no, I'm determined. I want to do this. I want to be able to play Chopin and Beethoven and all these great composers. So we, this went back and forth for a couple of minutes. And then he finally looked me straight in the eye and he goes, will you do anything I tell you? And I said, yes. And he says, we're going to shake on this. This is a contract. This is a verbal contract. You have to commit to me. And the second you stop doing what I tell you, there's the door. Mm. So being determined 12 at the time, I said, I will do anything. Mm. So he goes, okay. And he closed the piano lid on me and says, come to the table. And, and I said, okay. And he says, I'm going to teach you how to use your fingers. Mm. I had no control of my fingers. They were just flying mess. Mm. And we did finger tapping exercises mm. and finger movement, independent exercises for three months. And I looked at him after a couple of weeks of this, and I said, when do I get to play the piano? And he goes, not until I tell you. So I religiously sat there at the table and did all these finger exercises. And then after three months, he goes, okay, now we can go to the piano. Can I, can I ask, at this point, this was in Japan? Yes. Okay, and uh, did he have practice assignments that involved finger tapping um, at home that yes. you had to go through? I had to go through, like three or four different times a day, about 10 minutes each of finger tapping exercises. So talk about being so bored. I did a lot of listening. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, and I was determined, and I saw that piano and I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do it. And so I just sat at the table and did all these things. And, and each week, he, you know, it got more complicated mm. learning to do different things. Did, but, mm -hmm. Do you remember if he used any materials and uh, books for this? Or is it something that he just created, a curriculum of his own? You know, I have no idea. He just knew that as old as I was, mm. I not having control of my fingers, not having the ability to move a single finger on its own, mm. he just needed to break it down to the basics. Wow. So he just kind of made it up as he went, as I'm assuming, because he said with the younger kids, he doesn't do what he did with me. Yeah. He had an ear that was uncanny. I'd be in the other room, and he'd be like, your fingering's wrong right here. And I'm like, you were cooking. <laughs> How do you even hear that? And, he, and I'd he'd come back and look at it and goes, oh, yeah, my fingering's wrong. Mm. So he was just an incredible teacher. All right, thank you for that. Sorry for interrupting oh, that's okay. you. You just left off at, I think you said you did about three months of finger tapping. And so here comes the day where I finally get the piano, and I'm so excited. And he goes, now we're going to do scales and arpeggios. And so six months, I did nothing but scales and arpeggios. Went through all of them. And so here's nine months of training. And at the end of that nine months, he says, okay, we're ready for our first piece. We have the studio recitals three months away. 
I think we're ready to learn our first recital piece. So I went from not being able to play a Clementi Sonatina to Mozart's K333 E-flat major. It's basically scales and arpeggios, <laughs> but that was my piece, and I got it, and I was so excited, and I was like, this is much harder than the last piece of music I learned. Well, in two months, I had learned and memorized the entire sonata, and I got to play it. Yeah. And it was just mind-boggling, because at that point, I could actually play scales evenly, I could actually play what was on the page. And so that began my big flying growth in piano. And it was that nine months of training in in the sense. And then we started with all the Bach inventions and we played every single Bach invention. His goal was you're going to learn one a week. Mm. Well, of course, the first one took me about three and a half months to learn. But then we gradually got there, we did all the symphonias, we did a bunch of the French suites, and we did some more Mozart, and a little bit of Beethoven, we didn't play any Haydn, then we went to Chopin, and by the time I was graduating high school, I was playing Liszt La Campanella, Mm -hmm. and Beethoven Waldstein, and these kind of things, so he had given me the foundation that I had never had. And um, my big triumph for my senior year was I was working on the Waldstein and I had gotten the second and third movement learned and it was one week before the recital and he goes, you know what, why don't you learn the whole first movement too and you can play the whole sonata for the recital. And I went, we're one week away. And he goes, yeah, you can do it. So I said, okay. So the amazing thing was my parents actually let me skip school about four days wow. and I just stayed home and practiced all day long and I learned and memorized it and I played the entire Waldstein Sonata. Wow. Um, but yeah, so that was my thing and I came to college and when I came to college, I went to Wittenberg University, a small liberal arts school. I was fifth generation alumni from there. My father went there, my grandparents went there, my great grandparents and my great great aunt went there. And I was determined to be a small town family practitioner or a cardiovascular surgeon. I was born with heart problems and spent most of my childhood in and out of hospitals. So my career path was going to be medicine. And I was strongly determined in that. Hardcore determined. So here I was at Wittenberg, a small of art school, where I could do both. I was double majoring in music and pre-med biology. And I chose Wittenberg for a couple of reasons. One, I was the only grandkid out of 19 that went there. But there was, it was a small enough department that allowed me to do a lot of things in music. Yet there was a professor that was doing leading research with electron microscopy on cancer research and predetermining early stages of non-malignant tumors and what they would turn out to be. So I got to college and uh, a friend of mine who had graduated from Wittenberg many years earlier, who was the organist at my um, one of the churches where my grandfather, after he retired, he became a substitute pastor at. Um, Bob Hobby, he had told me that once I get to Wittenberg, I needed to talk to Gwen Scheffel. She was a voice professor. So I got there. Um, I auditioned in piano. My uh, teacher, Robert Howitt, was the kindest person in the world. We just kind of had fun with piano. I started organ lessons at the same time as a freshman. I'd never played organ in my life before, but I thought church music would be a great way to go. And I got to accompany a lot of voice. I worked mm-hmm. for Gwen Shuffle and all of her students. So I was playing for everybody. Mm-hmm. Our department was about 35 majors. Mm-hmm. And 
I was put on staff right away. And so my jobs in college were staff piano, staff collaborative pianist, and also translator for um, one of my uh, his uh, philosophy professors hmm. um, from Japanese to English. Hmm. And so, and I worked also in the restaurant industry and did the double major in the pre-med biology. I didn't end up doing any research, but I went through the whole process. Um, and it was my senior year, you know, you do the med school applications yeah. and did all that and did the med school process. And I was at one of the medical schools and a very interesting question was presented to me. The board goes, you know, Josh, we think you will make an incredible small town family practitioner practitioner but you are so involved in music we need you to see if you can go cold turkey with music your senior year and then let us know if you still want to come mm. so here I was left with this concept and you know being what 23 at the time mm. cocky as all get out mm -hmm. it's like yeah they have no idea what they're talking about I'm, I'm gonna be able to do it all mm. and so here I was and, and it was interesting my it was my last year at Wittenberg um, over a course of about three months I started losing use of my right hand and it began with my fourth and fifth finger not being able to trade do trills mm. or intricate work and over a course of three months, it got to the point where I couldn't hold a pencil. Mm. We had no idea what was going on. So I went, I was basically physiologically forced to stop playing. Mm. And it wasn't tremendously painful. It was just, I had no control. And it's like, I couldn't hold a coffee cup. So I went and sought out all these physicians. So we tried a couple experimental uh, drugs and nerve enhancement and over and uh, deep tissue therapy and different types of things and over about six months from that I slowly regained control hmm. and so nine months after this had started happening all of a sudden I could kind of play again hmm. and it was at that moment I realized I was so starved because I couldn't touch a piano I couldn't play anything hmm. so here I was like I can't walk away from music hmm. so I called up the med school and thanked them for their thing and I said I'm really sorry I'm not coming you can give my spot to somebody else. Wow. And so they said, well, we're glad you figured this out now and not halfway through med school. Mm. Um, so here I was, and I graduated, and I was like, well, I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I know I need to get a master's. Mm. And at that point, it was May, and you know, all grad school auditions are done. So I was in a doctor's office, mm -hmm. and I'm looking at a um, magazine, an MENC magazine, and I flip over the backside, and it says, Miami University, looking for a full-time graduate assistant in piano hmm. and I go wait a minute this is the main issue so I ripped that page off and took it home and I called the professor Rob Thomas answered the phone and mind you this is like school's already out hmm. and he and I talked and he goes yeah we still have an opening why don't you come down for an audition and I said well I would love to I haven't played in nine months hmm. I could send you my junior and senior recital and he goes, well, do you think you could play anything? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll come and I'll play something. So this was like Tuesday and I went down Friday and I whipped out WC's Sunken Cathedral and I figured, okay, that I can probably whip out and mem mm -hmm. re-memorize again. And so I did and I played and I gave him my recital and we talked and he explained to me all the things that were going on. And that night he gives me a call and he says, I'm halfway through your junior recital. Apply to the university. 
we'll give you the full ride, mm. we'll give you the assistantship, get it taken care of right now. Mm. And I'm going, oh, cool. Mm. So I did, and lo and behold, I ended up at Miami University is in, for my master's in piano, studying with Rob Thomas, and when I got there, my GA ship was playing for 20 singers. Mm. I was assigned two operas. Um, I played for 12 instrumentalists in an 80-member women's course. Mm. Needless to say, I didn't have any time to practice my own stuff, mm. and I also blew my arm completely out mm. at the end of my first year. And it was, I was at a piano, you know, 16 hours a day. It was mm. just not feasible, and I didn't have the ability to be able to do that. I know some people can, but I just didn't. And so over the summer, I just kind of recuperated, and when I went back for my second year, they said, okay, well, you only have to play for the studio. Mm. That's it. We'll take everything else out. And then they gave me some class piano teaching to do. Mm. And then um, I graduated and I said, okay, I got through it and I decided that I wanted to go somewhere big. Mm. And at that time I had met Jenny, my wife. Mm. She was going off to California to study oboe with Ellen Vogel for her master's. And so I decided that I wanted to go to USC mm. and study with one of the Perrys. Mm. So I just went out there with her with a leap of faith. I had about $1,300 in my bank account, moved out there. We had an agreement that we would live together as roommates. Mm. And, you know, I would work and establish a studio and then I would apply. Mm. And so I went out there and um, I started recruiting like crazy, joined local MTAC, which is the Music Teachers Association in California. I was out there recruiting eight hours a day, going mm. everywhere, getting to every school and whatnot. And about three or four months went by and it's like my money is dwindling and mm. I'm going, oh my gosh. And um, I had used my money to buy an old beat up piano mm. and it was an old player piano and I bought it and I kept, you know, got it into my apartment and so I was teaching there. Um, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, one of my local colleagues said, there's, a, there's an elementary school, Albert Ellis Elementary School, that needs a music teacher. Yeah. You should apply. And I said, okay, I don't want to teach elementary school. That was the one job I never wanted to do. So I show up to the interview, and apparently they'd already hired me because they saw my resume, and it was I was the best candidate they had. So yeah. we're going through this interview, and, and I'm figuring out, this and he goes, oh, yeah, we've already hired you. Um, here's $5,000. Go shopping. Build us a music program. We actually don't have one. Wow. So I what? Do I get a classroom? And they go, yeah, you get a classroom. You do whatever you want. We just want a really good music program for K through 6. So I went out and bought basically a bunch of keyboards and orphan instruments and some books and, and set up a keyboard lab, and I started teaching K through 6 music. Wow. Um, I could do that in California because most of the music programs were cut, so mm. it was a booster-funded program. Mm. So I was doing that for three and a half years, and during that process, I started building up my studio and having teaching at the elementary school. I had after-school, mm. you know, class mm -hmm. piano classes and whatnot, and it just literally in about six months, I went from two or three students to thirty-five. Wow! So that was a blessing. And then I decided to apply at USC and just see where I stood. So mm -hmm. I, I went and applied, and and after I got rejected, obviously, the first time, and I called up Stuart Gordon, and, and I had a nice conversation with him, and he says, and I said, you know, can you please tell me what I need to do, because I really would like to come. And he goes, well, I looked at your resume, and you're very, you're kind of what we don't normally get here. Mm -hmm. 
you know, most of our students come from like Indiana and Juilliard and, you know, Manhattan and all these other big music schools, you know, especially applying for a doctorate. I mean, and you come from Wittenberg and Miami. And he goes, um, your resume is fantastic. You have done so much and we wish our doctorates had your kind of resume, but you've just had poor guidance. Mm. And I said, what does that mean? I said, well, you just have not studied with the right people mm. for us. Mm. So I went, okay. So I went to all my teachers and said, hey, um, they told you you have poor guidance. Mm. And they go, yeah, it means you haven't studied with their colleagues. Mm. And I'm going, oh. I had a good friend who was a patron of the arts, and she held master classes and concerts in her massive mansion. Mm. She had two Steinways, a New York Steinway D and a Hamburg D, and she could fit like 80 people in her living room. Mm. Um, and she called me up and says, hey, Ann Perry's going to come and teach a master class. You need to play for her. Mm. And I had been playing for this master class, you know, maybe twice a year. And so I went and I had my first lesson, master class with Antoinette Perry. And she blew my mind. I played mm. the Chopin second ballade. And she introduced me to a new concept called brushing into the keys. Mm. And we had had a really nice experience, or I had time, and I would learned so much from her. So I took what she, I learned from that. And then six months later, I called her up and I said, I don't know if you remember me. Mm. Um, but I played for you in a master class at the Sarah Kempelinski master classes. And I played the Chopin. And she goes, yes, I remember you. And I said, well, I'm auditioning again at USC, and I really want to study with you. Mm. But can I have some lessons before my audition? So she said, yeah, I remember you. Mm. Come. So this was a month before my audition. We had one lesson each week, one on each piece. And, um, you know, we'd gotten through everything, and she just opened my eyes about all different kinds of things. And it was a night before my audition. I had my last lesson on Mozart K570, the B-flat. Mm. And I sat down and played, and then she goes, oh, who did you say you studied this piece with? And I listed all the people, and then she's so funny, she goes, hmm, they should know better. <laughs> and she goes, you know what? Maybe I just need to play this piece for you. Yeah. So she sat down and played the first movement for me. And literally, I was Mars and she was Venus. It was complete opposite and it just blew my mind. It was the first time I'd seen her actually play. Mm. And I saw her fingers move in the way they did and her legato and everything. I was like, oh my gosh. So we worked a little bit on the exposition. Mm. And then we talked about the second movement. We worked a little bit on the second movement. And the third movement, she goes, you know, I kind of like what you're doing with the third movement. It's not at all what I would do, but... You do it well, so just run with it. Mm. So, and then she looks at me and she goes, do you think you can fix these things tonight? And I said, I will do my best. And on my way out, she goes, play well tomorrow. I'm going to fight for you. Mm. And I went, yes, ma'am. Mm. <laughs> and I went home and I think I practiced for like five or six hours. And you didn't get much sleep. I showed up for my audition. And I played, you know, and having not had much sleep, I didn't play the greatest, but I got to the Mozart. Mm. And then Stuart Gordon apparently leans over to Anne after I played, and he goes, did he study this piece with you? Mm. He had recognized her playing and my mm. playing on that one piece. And at that moment, Anne said, yes, last night 
Hmm. And you would you should have heard what he played for me at the beginning of last night. He did that in one night. Hmm. I want him in injections. Hmm. And across the board, John and everybody said, you can have him. Mm. Go ahead, and that's how I got in. It took me three times, mm. and I got in. And I had a wonderful experience learning, studying with her for five years. Wow. Um, all through this time, I was doing a lot of, you know, I, I played. Uh, I was playing for church. My son was born three weeks into my doctorate. Mm. Um, I was teaching a full studio. Jen was working at Target, just. You know, and she did the 4 a.m. shift, so we would do the baton passing. David would go with me to SC. Um, and being in Los Angeles, most of the classes met once a week, so I didn't have to be there every day. And they had talked about offering me an assistantship, but I said, no, I need to feed a family, so no thank you. And so we'd gone through all that, and, you know, David was with me in the morning, and then when I got back, uh, Jen took him, and then I taught all evening. So that's kind of how we did it in a 600 square foot bedroom, uh, 600 square foot apartment. And um, I got done with my doctorate and here I was just, you know, applying for every possible job you could think of. And the first year went by and nothing happened. And it's okay, I have a full studio, I can do this. And I had just finished the process of applying. And this was in end of, I think it was in May, early May. Out of nowhere, I get a phone call from Heidi Louise Williams. Mm. And she goes, hi, my name is Heidi Louise Williams, and here at Florida State, character is of the utmost importance. And I'm racking in my head, Heidi Louise Williams, Florida State, Florida State, why is Florida State calling me? I didn't apply to Florida State. <laughs> and I go, and I'm just listening, and she goes, we have an unexpected opening, and here at Florida State, we need a one-year visiting position, and basically the dean has asked all of the faculty to throw in three names. Mm. So I'm calling you, and I said, how do I know you? Mm. And she goes, you don't. Mm. She goes, I actually called my teacher, Anne Shine, at, from Peabody, and asked for recommendations. And at that moment, Anne Shine said, I don't have anybody of my current recent graduates that I can recommend for a one-year position at Florida State. Call Antoinette Perry. Mm. Heidi had never met Anne Perry, but Anne and Anne both taught together um, Aspen for many, many years, for 20 years. So Anne gets the phone call, and Anne, being who she was, she recommended me, and they had a conversation for about an hour on the phone. And mm -hmm. So Heidi goes, I just got off the phone with Anne and, and Perry, and she had a lot of nice things to say about you, so I would like to just talk to you a little bit. So we mm -hmm. talked for about 45 minutes on the phone. And at the end of that 45 minutes, I had to actually cut her off and I said, I'm really sorry, Heidi, but my son, who's in preschool, is getting off the bus in like five minutes and I need to go get him. Mm -hmm. She goes, oh, okay, no problem. Just put in your cover letter that you and I spoke and that I encouraged you to apply. Mm -hmm. So I did. I threw my name in the hat and see what happened. And it was about a month later in June, I get the invite to come. And they, so I made the short list of three people. I'm like, oh my gosh. So... I went to Florida State, had my interview there, and met Lenny Mastro Giacomo, who was the chair of the committee at that time. I had a wonderful time with him. And um, at the end of the conversation, uh, the dean uh, had told me that just stay by the phone, you'll hear from us within a week. So I'm at home just nervously waiting, and lo and behold, on Friday, I get a phone call, and the dean says, Well, we'd like to offer for you the job and I was jumping up on down on my couch and the dean goes 
are you jumping up? <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I'm just really excited. So I got lucky and I landed Florida State mm. as a one-year visiting fresh out of my doctorate. Mm. Talk about an opportunity and a terrifying opportunity, but an opportunity. You know, I was just so overwhelmed with how mm. blessed that opportunity mm. was. So here I ended up at Florida State and the first day there, Lenny wraps his arm around me and goes, Josh, I know you work hard, but you will have you will never work harder than you will this year. Mm. 21 students, a grad lit class, which is where I met yeah. you. Yeah. Um, three tours. Um, I never saw my family that year. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, the first thing the dean said to me when I got there, he sat me down and he's a real straight shooter. Um, and he goes, this is a one-year position. We are going to do a nationwide search. You are not the kind of candidate that we would want for a nationwide search here at Florida State mm. because you do not have an international career. Mm. I'm going, yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm fresh out of my doctorate. I'm, I'm, I'm green. Mm. And he says, but if you do good this year, I will advocate for you mm. to the world's end. And mm. he did. Mm. And that year, I um, we, had we had had a list festival. One of my freshmen, Haywan Chola, actually made finalist in that mm. batch. And um, one of the judges for that competition was Jeremy Samuelski, who taught at Auburn. Mm. And um, Auburn had opened up a lecture position in piano that year. So mm. I applied, and I got lucky, and I made Auburn. Mm. So there I was at Auburn. And that summer, I ended up at Orfeo Music Festival in Italy, which is where I met a lot of wonderful friends. Uh, one of the people I met was Beth Good, who's, who was flute faculty. She just retired from here at BSU. Uh, Scott Poole was a bassoonist, mm -hmm. and Trio Zheng, who was from Cincinnati, a wonderful soprano. And the three of us started, you know, uh, uh, the three of them and I, we started collaborating together, and we did mm -hmm. many, many tours together over the next several years. And we got to know each other. I got to visit BSU three times, which is where I met Lyle Endegaard, mm -hmm. who was the head of piano here. Uh, and so here I was at Auburn, I was teaching class piano, and I was teaching um, ear training, freshman ear training, mm -hmm. and at the time, um, when I got there, they said, recruit like Matt, we want to build a music program, and whoever you recruit, you'll, you'll be allowed to teach, mm -hmm. applied. So I thought, great, I, I, I can do this. Mm -hmm. Well, that changed, and over the years, I was not allowed to teach any applied. Mm -hmm. I was allowed to teach one student for a year, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Here we were, I was kind of, I'd gotten the senior lecture position, done the one promotion, and it was a dead-end job. It was nothing more I could mm -hmm. do there to progress at Auburn. And I had started thinking about applying. I was very unhappy, and career-wise, professionally, mm -hmm. I was very unhappy. But my son was a rising freshman in high school, mm -hmm. and he had, as an eighth grader, made it into the high school JV team in Auburn. Mm -hmm. And so his rising freshman year, he had a shot, you know, he was going to be in the lineup of the varsity team, so he was really have, building his high school career, you know, his career there in Auburn. Um, Jen knew that I wasn't happy, um, mm -hmm. so we, we kind of made peace with the fact that, you know what, I'm just going to sit tight for four more years, and at his senior year, I'm going to apply to every single job there is mm -hmm. open, and we'll just see what happens. And it was that year I got a call from Lyle Indegaard mm -hmm. from BSU, and says, Josh, we have an opening, and this opening at VSU is going to be a one-year transition into the head of piano. Mm. And I went, I'm not really working right now. And Lyle mm. goes, no, you need to apply. Mm. He says, out of all the people I know, 
I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years, and and I would really like for you to throw your name in the hat. Mm. You know, if if I could pick it, you would be in the top three. And mm. I said, okay, well, and the lesson to be learned is when you get an invite, you apply because it doesn't mean anything, but it means that somebody's fighting for you. Mm. So I, I applied, and lo and behold, I got lucky and I landed the issue. Mm. And here I was, and I was faced with an enormous dilemma between career and family. Mm. And we thought hard, and Doug Farwell, who was the department head, you know, when he offered me the job, um, it, was a, it was a pay cut, um, especially because I had a full studio in Auburn, about 25 students. Mm. Um, but it was a tenure track. Mm. Great future here. I had to yank my son mm. from a very happy place into the completely unknown and my son is on the spectrum and so change is always very very difficult so I asked Doug for two weeks and I said I know you don't you want an answer in five days but I need two weeks mm. because I need to bring my family to Valdosta we need to explore all the options I need to really kind of make sure that this can work for my family and he begrudgingly agreed mm. <laughs> it says I'll give you two weeks, but you need to give me an answer then. So I said, okay. So here we were, and we visited uh, Valdosta three times mm. over those two weeks. And we brought David here. We showed him the high schools. And by that time, after that first trip, Jen and I decided that, you know what? We're going to go this route. Mm. We're going to accept the issue, and our family will be fine. We just have to stand firm. We're not giving David the choice. We're just telling him what's going to happen and we're going to give him as much choice in as everything that he can have such mm. as which high school does he go mm. to and all that kind of stuff so we visited we spent uh, two weekends plus uh, a day here so i started and the first year was transitioning and then i got to take over and i'm incredibly happy here for several reasons um it's an incredible department colleagues are fantastic I get to build culture, yeah. I get to be a part of building something new, and I get to teach graduate students, I get to teach applied, I get to teach collaborative piano, I get to do all these things that I've always wanted to do, yeah. and so the leap of faith and the move was the right one. So here I am, four years in, um, you know, I'm going up to, for tenure this coming summer, and I'm in a place where I have incredible colleagues. Mm. I'm in a place where I get to do a lot of things and I have you where we can be a team together to build culture and and so I'm incredibly happy. Wow. Yeah, so here I am. That's incredible. I loved hearing the full story. I mean, I've heard snippets here and there in our conversations together, but it certainly helps me understand you better and understand your vision for not just, you know, your students, but for our area as a whole and for our department. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. You had mentioned uh, briefly that during your undergrad and during your master's, you had done extensive collaborative piano work. And I know now as your colleague, you know, you continue to play collaboratively. Just recently, you gave a um, recital here mm -hmm. in our recital hall. So can you talk a little more about that, about your continuing role as a collaborative pianist mm -hmm. and now as a professor that teaches students who major in collaborative piano? When I look back at what all I have done on the stage, it's probably like 90% collaborative pianist 
and 10% soloist. Mm. Um, and as a collaborative pianist, you're still a soloist. Mm. You know, you play at the highest level you can, but the difference is there's this wonderful give and take mm. and the opportunity to be influenced and also influence your partners mm. in the moment. And that's something I really, really enjoy. You know, we can be spontaneous as solo pianists, but there's this level of excitement when, you know, you are, you've been rehearsing and here you are on stage and all of a sudden your partner does something that you've never heard before. It's like, oh my gosh, that was incredible. And then you turn around and it's this feeding back and forth. It's just fun. Mm. Yes, I've had many experiences that I've not enjoyed mm. in collaborative piano, such as when I've had to play for an entire recital with five days notice. Mm. Um, they all went. Mm. They weren't the most enjoyable just because it was so terrifying. I remember having to play for Carol Winchank, you know, the, mm. one of the mm. biggest named flutists in Florida State, with five days notice, and we did a world premiere. And she was incredible. Mm. And here I was basically stopping everything and you know mm -hmm. having to learn all the music and uh, we had a wonderful time mm -hmm. um, I was scared beyond belief but mm -hmm. we had a good time um, I've also worked with uh, with people that it has not been a pleasant collaboration with mm -hmm. for, for a variety of reasons and that's okay um, we still made good music together mm -hmm. when I got to college when my friend Bob Hobby told me that I needed to play for voice I said you know, at the time, I'd only played for violin. And I was like, my voice, I don't like voice. You know, all this opera singing, all that wobbling vibrato and all these other languages, I don't understand. I don't want to play for voice. But once I started doing it, it just opened up my world and made me understand that there's so much more yeah. to just playing notes on the piano. Yeah. And turns out that I love German leader. Yeah. I could play German leader nonstop. And I just really enjoy it. Um, I think collaborative piano teaches you so much about your own solo playing. Mm -hmm. It really teaches you voicing, it teaches you understanding the music, makes you a better musician because it teaches you how to listen. Mm -hmm. Even with my high school students and some of my junior high students, I teach my solo private students mm -hmm. a little bit of collaborative piano and they like it. You know, it's mm -hmm. fun to make music with your friends. Mm -hmm. and. Here I am here having the opportunity to teach it. Mm. Now, my degrees are not in collaborative piano, but I've done a lot of it. I've learned a lot from working with all these different instruments. I have literally played for every single instrument. Teaching it has been really eye-opening. You know, um, my teachers have always said, if you can teach something, you really start to understand it. Mm. Not having had the actual instruction in collaborative piano, all my experience has been just professionally mm. and doing it and working with different people, picking up different things and just getting out there and doing it. And so a lot of it is from personal experience and I struggled a lot in a lot of different things. So I empathize with the students mm. that these are new things. And you know, students will always say, I prefer this or I don't enjoy this kind of accompanying as much. Um, but I think it's important to do a little bit of everything. Mm. Um, if you're trying to, as you and I know, we have to you know, play concerts outside mm. of our institution. Mm. And, well, we don't have to, but we enjoy it. And mm. it's looked you know, fondly upon when you do a lot of that. It's a lot easier when you're collaborating with a lot of other people because you can plan some of them and they can plan some mm. of them. So all of a sudden your opportunities to perform and the mm -hmm. number of times you get to go on stage increases mm -hmm. five times fold and 
you're always constantly working on new music, which is exciting. I found that, you know, no more than five programs a semester is plenty, mm. <laughs> you know, which includes um, a solo program. So I've always played probably somewhere along the lines of 10 to 15 programs a year. And it keeps you on your toes. Um, I think eventually down the road, I think I'll just cap it to four a semester. I think that would be more than plenty and give me the opportunity to really dig into the music. Mm. And now I'm at a place in my career where I kind of get to pick and choose, mm. which is really nice. You know, I, I pick and choose the people I work with um, to do certain things. I've formed many duos. Uh, my first official duo was with my wife. Mm. Um, we did go through about eight years of not playing at all just because of, you know, raising a family, but we're back to it now. Um, I also formed a trio called the Oto Trio with my mother, Japanese art, and my sister, violin. Mm. Uh, we did a couple uh, years of that, um, and it's kind of gone on hold. But um, my the one, the concert you heard last week, uh, Planes 2 slash Planes 3, is with my trombone buddy and my horn buddy from Auburn, Matt Wood and Bill Schaefer, and we've played together for 11 years now. Mm. Our focus has been music that people can walk away just happy mm. and singing some of the tunes. Mm. Um, and here I've formed a trio with uh, Peter Geldrich, clarinet, and his, and his wife, Shannon Lowry, um, with bassoon. So we are the geldrich Lau piper trio, and we've done several tours together, and it's just fun. Mm. It's enjoyable. We uh, do all kinds of fun literature. And then teaching it has been really enjoyable for me. I'm so lucky to be in a place that actually offers a collaborative degree. Um, interestingly, in Georgia, there's only two schools, Mercer and us, that offer a graduate program in collaborative piano. And so we've had, in my four years here, I've had one, two, three, four collaborative majors now, mm. um, which is been incredible. And what's so unique about the program here is the philosophy of the issue is our faculty play with our graduate students on their degree recitals. And the whole philosophy of that is you only get better if you play with people that are better than you. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of faculty here that are so eager to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't often see a department where like faculty are excited to play with students yeah. to help them grow yeah. that's just something you don't see everywhere and I'm blessed to be in a place where faculty are like yeah absolutely yeah. now it takes a lot of collaborating of schedules and you know a lot of human relations to do this but yeah. it's really enjoyable that students have the opportunity to really grow exponentially yeah. versus if they're only playing for undergrads yeah. you know and here they get the opportunity to do that too but they get the full spectrum. So one of the fun things about uh, being able to talk to you is I have more insider information about your <laughs> life and about what you do. And, uh, you know, one of our recent incoming graduate students is from Honduras, and mm -hmm. she's studying collaborative piano under you. And uh, me serving as her academic advisor and you serving as her uh, major professor, you know, we've talked about why she wants to study collaborative piano, and she said that collaborative piano is simply not a field that is offered and uh, studied in Honduras, and so she wanted to pursue that training. Now, you have worked uh, rather extensively with musicians from Honduras and have brought a lot of musicians uh, from Honduras to Valdosta State, so can you talk a little more about that, working with those students and even going there giving concerts? 
Yeah, so VSU has had an interesting history of students from Central America. If, if I have my facts straight, maybe about eight years ago, a faculty quartet, a piano quartet, went down and toured in Colombia, Honduras. And from that experience, there was kind of a surge of students applying. Mm -hmm. So we had, a, you know, at one point we had a full string quartet mm -hmm. from Colombia um, here uh, as graduate students. And we had gotten some piano students from Honduras and from Brazil. And um, so my first year here, we had a graduate student, Julio Garner, who had just come from, uh, he had actually done his um, undergrad in the States, but he was from Tegucigalpa in Honduras, and he did his under, um, pre-college training there. And we had another student, Gloria Lemus, uh, who was from San Pedro Sula, and done her um, pre-college uh, training there, and they both were here at BSU, and I got to know them, and wonderful students, and just really hardworking. And so we had started talking about, you know what, it's been a couple years since any BSU faculty's been down there, and and they were just telling me about the kind of education that goes on in Honduras where they just don't have the resources, they don't have the money, they don't have the instruments. You know, they were playing mostly on digital keyboards and there's only like maybe three or four grands in all of Honduras. And so we had started talking about this, you know, I want to do a recruiting trip and go down there and I want to teach at the schools. So those two students helped me plan a 17-day visit mm -hmm. where I spent a little over a week in each city in Tegucigalpa and also San Pedro Sula at their former pre-college institutions, which are like national conservatories. And um, there's three important national conservatories in Honduras, two in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital, and one San Pedro Sula. So I went to the uh, one in Tegucigalpa, I didn't get a chance to go to the National Conservatory there uh, in Tegus because of riots and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But so I spent the whole week at Julio's old school. Mm -hmm. And then I spent uh, a whole week teaching at Gloria's school in San Pedro Sula. And I, you know, spending eight hours a day there teaching the students, every single one of them, you know, they're from like 13 up to 18, every single one of them is just craving information mm. and unfortunately the teachers don't even have college degrees mm. you know they're, they're doing the best they can anybody who has any potential is wanting to leave Honduras and mm. come to the States and have a career somewhere else so while I was there I was offered two jobs on the mm. spot and I said we will pay you full-time I said no I already have a full-time job thank you but I'll come back and do this every couple years and they were just thrilled and the mm. kids are so excited to learn um, in Tegus, uh, the pianos they were playing on, they had these piano practice rooms, and this school was actually built 30 years ago by, um, as a donation from one of the royal family from Japan. Mm. Uh, there was a princess uh, from the royal line who had, this was her project, and she had built the school and donated uh, like 25 pian Yamaha pianos, mm. and every single piano there was 25 years old. Mm. And half of them didn't even work. Like there was, there were several pianos where the whole bottom range, all you heard was click, click, click. Mm. And there were a couple quick fixes I could do with fixing a few things, but I'm not a mm. technician. Um, so they were thrilled that I could fix a pedal or fix a few little things that were dislodged or whatnot. But they were playing on these instruments that were just 
hideous. Mm. They have one good instrument, and that was kept in a um, basically a steel container. Mm. So they only tuned it when they had concerts. Mm. So you can imagine, you know, Honduras is like 115 degrees mm. Fahrenheit with 95% humidity. I mean, these how they lasted this long, I have no idea. Mm. Um, so they just don't have the resources. But strings and piano, the training there is very rigid. It's mm. very demanding. Um, a lot of these kids that go to these conservatories, they've never played piano in their life before, but they take an aptitude test, and if they pass, they get in, and then they start practicing like five, six hours a day. Mm. And that's all they do. They go to regular school in the morning, and then all afternoon and evening is at the music school. And that's where their training is. And so in five, six years, these kids are playing repertoire that you know is standard high-level college repertoire. Mm. Now, are they playing at an incredible musicianship? Not always, but they're just, you know, working hard. Mm. Um, so I had a wonderful time. I played concerts there. Um, Julio and Gloria both played, performed uh, in the recitals there as alumni. And um, I remember the experience of work, uh, playing concerto there. I played a Mozart concerto, the C major one, their 503. And um, the first uh, one in Tegus, we played in an outdoor theater and that was a decent piano it was the only one good piano they had in all of Tegus yeah. <laughs> the technician you know really worked hard on it to get it to good playing condition we had a wonderful experience the concert was it had like I don't know 400 500 people yeah. there and it's just everybody outdoors so we have here we have outside in the middle of Tegus with mariachi band playing over here a big party going on yeah. there and Mozart being played at the same time yeah. so you know it was like Charles Ives um, but it was incredibly well attended, and the yeah. excitement was there. They raised money for the scholarships and whatnot. And then San Pedro Sula, um, similar situation, but in San Pedro, um, I played Mozart on a spinet piano, okay. which was an experience. I took every shell off it, and they still couldn't hear me, and, they, and, and so they had to mic it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the kids, oh my gosh, these kids were so so excited to play with people. In Tegus, uh, the orchestra is, is con uh, consists of students and professionals. Mm -hmm. And they did two concerts that year, mine and one other concert, and it was a fundraising concert. And uh, the headliner for that was um, Placido Domingo. Mm -hmm. So here I was following Placido, mm -hmm. or Placido. Oh, that was mm -hmm. terrifying. But those were the only two concerts they had in mm -hmm. classical music that year. Mm -hmm. So the students are very eager. They just don't have the opportunities. Yeah. I got to teach master classes and lessons there, and that's where I got to meet our two undergraduates that are currently here, Rebecca and Kevin. Mm. And they are both wonderfully hardworking. Mm. Uh, the one thing I've found with all these kids from Honduras is having the opportunity to come to the States is an enormous feat mm. and a dream that to most of them, they just don't think is feasible. Mm. And Gracia, who is our current graduate student from Tegus, and she had, you know, she was solo trained and she did her undergraduate degree in solo at the university, but she didn't have a teacher for two years because mm. there was nobody there to teach. Mm. And she enjoyed collaborative piano, so she was just playing, and they were using her as an undergraduate student mm. to play for all the juries and the recitals, mm -hmm. 
for the other instruments and teaching mm. chamber music. Mm. Here she was an undergrad. She, had, she, she said, I had no idea what I was doing, but I'm just playing. Mm. And she really enjoyed the collaborative atmosphere. But so she's excited to learn. She said she's never had any training in any of this. Mm. Rebecca loves collaborative piano. She loves chamber music. She loves working with other musicians. As she puts it, I don't like to be in the spotlight. Mm. <laughs> but they really work hard. Mm. And the training may not be the greatest, but the work ethic is there. Mm. And they're playing good literature, so you have a lot to work with. Here they're like sponges. Mm. But they're a real joy to teach. And uh, from all this, uh, I had a good friend of mine who is a patron for our department. And he is actually sponsoring one of our students here, helping her get a full ride here. Mm. Um, so there's support and there's excitement. Um, it's really a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to going back maybe next summer mm. once everything slows down with yeah. COVID. I think this is a perfect transition to our next question, which is, what would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? This is always an interesting question, and I think there's three factors that all need to play a very important role. Obviously, the student and the teacher is another. And then the support system, mm. the family or the friends or whoever is there to support them. It's kind of like a tripod. Um, and if all three aren't there, it's very difficult. There are just so many obstacles for the success to happen. I'm a firm believer in first and foremost, hard work is where you get where you are. You know me, I don't like to sit still. In fact, my wife often tells me, sit down. Mm. And I was like, no. I, <laughs> it makes me very uncomfortable to just sit and do nothing. Mm. Um, I've always worked hard. My parents have always worked hard. So I'm a firm believer in that. You know, Without work ethic, you just don't get anywhere. Mm. Talent is great. Talent gives you the ability to pick up things instinctively. It makes a growth in ways easier because you have the ability to do things naturally without having to break down all the steps and understand it and fight through a lot of difficulties. Um, I've seen many students that have incredible talent hit a wall and just crumble because they've always gotten by with just their talent. Mm. And all of a sudden, talent only takes you so far. And when you hit that wall where you're actually learning something that's very difficult that your talent alone doesn't let you do it, they don't know what hard work means. Mm. I've seen many students crumble, mm. and that's the first time they learn that, oh my gosh, maybe I need to actually work. Mm. So I think it's nice to have talent. It's a gift as a teacher when your students have talent, because you don't have to spend as much time mm. on certain things, but if they don't work hard, nothing happens. So I really am always an advocate for working hard no matter what. And I, at the same token, I have seen students that have had no raw talent, um, determination, tenacity, the, uh, the drive to strive to just sit there and do the work and to grow. You know, yes, it, 
it's harder. Yes, it takes more time, but what they gain from that is incredible. Um, Stravinsky was asked that question. How do you get inspired to write these great pieces? Where does all this talent and amazing stuff come from? And his response was, I sit at a desk five hours every day. Even if nothing comes, I still sit at that desk and try to write something. And there's something to be said about that. So I'm an advocate for hard work. And talent is just a nice bonus. I love that you described it as a tripod Mm -hmm. and the third element being um, support. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that helps me transition really beautifully to our very next question, which is what advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? Mm -hmm. How can they encourage and help them to succeed? What role do parents play in a child's musical development? Mm It's incredibly important to have all three, and especially at the younger ages. I've taught as young as two. My most successful youth was three. Mm-hmm. And that was really primarily because of the parents. When I teach young students, the parents are in the lessons, and the parents are given homework. Because up until maybe about second grade or so, um, depending on how early they start, Students really, young children don't have the ability to be able to keep track of everything and be able to keep track of what their homework is and to have that ability to do what you ask them to. The parents need to be involved. And so with the younger children, uh, I teach to both the child and the parent. The parent takes notes. The parents have the ability to call me at any time and ask me any questions. And they sit there and practice with them. Mm With this particular three-year-old that I had incredible success with, both her parents were elementary school teachers. And so for the young three-year-old, music was her first literate language. Mm-hmm. She learned how to read music before she learned how to read you know, books. Mm-hmm. Um, very bright, but the parents sat down patiently. And the one thing I told the parent I tell the parents is you're you're not there teaching your child. You're there teaching a student. It's very important to make that differentiation between my child versus a student. And especially as educators, we understand that. Um, Having to teach your own child is very difficult. (laughs) I remember a story where Antoinette Perry had to teach her own daughter because, you know, that's what her daughter asked. And Anne came to me and says, can you teach her? Mm. <laughs> it says, I'm ready to kill her. And mm-hmm. I cry every lesson, after every lesson because I feel like I failed her. And, mm. and I kind of remind her, says, no, you haven't. You're her mother. You can't teach her like your daughter. Mm. Um, mm. And I've experienced that too with my son when he wanted to learn piano. And he says, I want to study from you. And I, I had that talk with him. He says, when I teach you, you're not my son. You are just another student of mine. I'm going to treat you the same way as all the other students. And he understood that because he'd seen me teach. Mm. Um, so parents need to be involved at that early stage to sit with them and to encourage them and to put it into their routine. Mm. And once they get past the point where the children are able to kind of do this on their own, then the parents' role changes to making sure that it's built into their schedule mm. and making sure that they have the resources that they need so that the students can successfully do the weekly work mm. to successfully grow and then start to listen to the teachers about opportunities. I think the parents' role, once the kids get to a point where they're able to be a little bit more independent and they're starting to play real literature and you know they're, they're really kind of serious about it, 
then the parent's role turns to research and support for opportunities mm. um, to be able to find the resources so that the students can have uh, good educational experiences such as competitions or evaluations or looking up opportunities. One of my private students, uh, the parents started looking up every local competition you could think of and she would, uh, the mom would just give me all these lists and I said, okay, this is, this is great, let's do these ones. And the parents' role was literally researching and you know finding the money and this is a difficult thing too because not every uh, family is gifted with the luxury of financial ease and so I have some scholarship students too and because I, I was that way yeah. I had a teacher that at one point that said you know I'll, I'll teach you for every other lesson for free yeah. um, and so I do a little bit of that depending on the students needs um, supporting them and then encouraging them embracing them in their failures and just giving them the undivided love which a parent can give yeah. And that support and being there, you know, the teacher can play the role of being the strict person, whereas the parent is just giving the opportunities. Mm. I've experienced that with my own son, my Jen and I, you know, we have a teenage boy now, and there is no making a teenager do what they don't want to do. <laughs> when our son decides that he wants to do something, our role has been, we got to figure out a way to do that. Mm. Because when they, when teenagers decide, boy, they fly. And when they have that self-drive, they fly. So that support is so important. Yeah. The one thing I have really dislike as a teacher is when the parents come to me and say, I want my child to do piano. Yeah. And I ask them, why? And I said, well, because I like piano. Yeah. And so I always tell the parents, I'll teach you. Yeah. And so in my private studio, a policy I've always lived with is I've always told the parents when they come with that, and I said, okay, we'll give it a couple months and see if I can excite the child if I if I can inspire the your child to actually want to play piano that's great I may not be able to do that mm. maybe your son just really wants to play soccer mm. and I said but we're gonna give it a couple months and see what happens I usually give him about three months or so and then if it doesn't happen at that point I said if you really still want to continue here's the deal you have to take lessons with me too mm -hmm. I'm not gonna bill you but you have to come and do weekly lessons with me mm. And every single parent that has been determined enough to do that has realized that, oh my gosh, this is so much hard work. Mm. Why am I torturing my child? Mm. <laughs> and we often part with happiness because we say, you know, your child wants to play soccer. Mm. Let them play soccer. <laughs> it's not, piano's not for everybody. Mm. So I think that's support. That's, um, those are some of the advices I have for them. Please continue to encourage your children embrace every aspect of their growth. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? Well, when I was in California, it was MTAC, so I didn't do anything with MTNA. When I went to Florida State uh, and taught that when you're visiting, I did join FMTA. It was really when I moved to Auburn, Alabama, that MTNA really became a part of my life and when I moved to Auburn I was called upon by one of the Alabama music teachers uh, board members and say we would you know welcome to Alabama welcome to the south we would love to have you on the board so they offered me the position as collegiate faculty advisor and faculty forum chair I jumped on the board 
I built a collegiate chapter at Auburn. Um, in my tenure in that position, we grew the Alabama chapters, collegiate chapters from two to six. I had a good time. And then during that time, they asked me to become vice president in Alabama. It's a six-year term. It's two years VP, two years president, two years immediate past president. And the first two times, I turned them down uh, just because it wasn't the right time for me. Um, and finally, when I agreed, it was like, you know, this gives me an opportunity to channel some positive energy into something that is really good. Al AMTA embraced me, welcomed me, and provided opportunities for me. They trained me, um, they gave me opportunities, they mentored me, and in return, once I got into the VP position, it gave me the opportunity to bring in young uh, board members, you know, and to lay the groundwork for future generations. And I think MTNA really embrace, embraces this concept of it's not an organization to serve us, but it's an organization to serve our students and our future members to bring the young people in. And what they have to offer is youth vitality, new ideas, and a different way of thinking. You know, so many of us get stuck in our ways and, and we have our routines and we have our teachings from 20, 30 years ago and we've been teaching, you know, it, yes, it works, but every once in a while you get a young person coming up, where, where did that idea come yeah. from? Um, when I accepted VSU, um, I was going, I had just finished my second term as vice president. Um, and then I have four years left in the term, and here I was moving to a different state. We had to call Gary Ingle up and make sure that there was nothing in the national bylaws saying that a state association president had to reside in the states, and there was nothing of that sort. So the board asked me, I said, if you are willing, I will remain, because I'm allowed to, and they all said, yes, please. So I got to serve as president mm -hmm. from Georgia. And that's when I met Joy Poole, who was GMTA president at the time. And we really connected and we worked together on a lot of projects. Southern Division is incredibly tight. Um, it is a good organization that is very supportive of each other. They do a lot of collaborating together. And so Georgia always claimed that they had two state presidents <laughs> in-house. <laughs> but um, I think it's a wonderful organization. I think it's an organization that... Has, has the resources to be able to mentor young people yeah. and to learn from young people. Um, we've had the opportunity to take our students to GMT State Conference, which was an incredible opportunity for our students. They were inspired beyond belief. Yeah. And um, we also, Joy and I worked on doing a South Georgia string, uh, Piano Pedagogy Conference, a one-day conference here. And we were able to do that, um, just providing opportunities to spots, to areas that are underserved in ways. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's been a wonderful organization. It's an organization that I'll always be a part of. Um, it's an organization that I'll encourage my students to be a part of. So as past president of AMTA and as a professor at a university that is in a tenure track position by all accounts, everyone who looks at your life and listens to your account thinks this man has made it. He, he has achieved what we all hope to achieve in our career. 
So from this vantage point in your life and in your career, what advice do you have for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? I must first say um, I'm very, very fortunate. I think everybody has dreams. Mm. Everybody has their, their career paths you know, um, mapped out in ways. Nothing ever goes the way you think it's going to go. There's there's a couple things that I want to bring out to this, um, and I think it's three key components uh, when it turns in terms of career paths. And um, first and foremost, um, I think you need to set your own personal goals of what it is in life that you want to do. And this will change as you grow older. I remember, you know, I obviously converted from uh, medicine into this field. And um, at the time, once I got into music, you know, I don't know if I really knew what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted, I enjoyed the collegiate atmosphere. So I knew I wanted to teach in college. Um, Some people will say that, you know, my end goal is to be at a place like USC or Juilliard or, you know, FSU, kind of a hardcore conservatory where you get the best of the students from all over the world, that's a hard goal to reach. (laughs) Some are easier, um, but you need to set your personal goals by knowing first and foremost what it is that is going to make you happy. Set both lofty goals and realistic goals. The realistic goals are you have to make peace with the fact that things are going to take time. Your first job is never going to be your dream job. Maybe it is. Um, when I landed FSU, yeah, that was a dream job. I don't, I mean, talk about how lucky I was and the way that happened for me. A phone call to another phone call to me. And then I had got lucky enough to land it. So, yes, landing Florida State was the most important thing in my career that launched my career. I don't think I would have ended up here if I didn't end, end up that way. Um, so setting your goals and knowing, but knowing that there should be realistic goals that have timelines, yeah. you know, I think I can achieve this in the next five years. Yeah. I think I can achieve this in the next 10 years. As you go through your career, I think it's very important to slowly try to add a little bit more of what you really, really love. Yeah. There are always going to be, no matter where you are in life, there are things you're going to love and there are things you're not going to enjoy as much. There are things that you are going to, in fact, sometimes hate doing. Um, It doesn't matter where you are. There are things in the job I'm currently on that I don't enjoy and I would be very unhappy if that's all I had to do. Um, But adding in a little bit more of each time of what you really want to do, I think, gives you a healthy balance and a realization that you always have to do a lot of different things. I think the most important thing is embrace change. Embrace opportunities that you never expected to see happen. Um, At my commencement from USC, the dean, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, gave the (laughs) university commencement speech, which was incredible. And his message was, work hard, sleep only six hours a day, and work hard, work hard, work hard. And then he said, of course, Mary Kennedy helps. But his message was, when the opportunity presents itself, 
work hard and eventually that will pay off. I'm a firm believer in that. I've lived my life is if you keep your head down and if you work hard and if you work with the mission of serving, in my case, my job is to serve the students, you will be taken care of in the end. And I, I'm a firm believer in that. But the other thing that was really eye-opening was when the dean of USC spoke, he said, every single faculty member we have here at USC did not end up here taking the path that they thought they were going to take. Every single person will tell you that they ended up here because they walked through a door that happened to open in front of them unexpectedly, mm. or the opportunity just presented itself, and it was not on the top of my list of things to do. But the door opened, and they were brave enough to walk through it and embrace that opportunity and work hard. And from that, things started to happen. So those are my three advices to young professionals and to build relationships, to work hard, and to always have goals. Well, Josh, this has been an incredible conversation. I enjoy every conversation I have with you, but I really enjoyed this one and to hear your perspective and hear your whole story. Thank you so much for sharing that with me and for sharing it with our listeners. Thank you, baby. I wish you the best as you continue on on your very successful career, and I am so happy to be able to call you my friend and colleague. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. Thank you.